Hello, I'm John Chambers, and welcome to Chambers Talks. This is a discussion about tech disruption covering all industries and all aspects of the global economy. Today, I have a rare opportunity for a friend who our, our values are remarkably similar. We've uh, worked together for decades. Um, and an individual who's taking over the leadership of Federal Express, which is literally an iconic company led by a CEO. Raj, I looked all the way back. You know, Fred had been the CEO since 1971, and yet your company constantly reinvents itself, and you are now the second uh, individual to take responsibility for it. Uh, Raj Subramanian uh, is not only president and CEO, I've had the chance to work with him during these years on both business opportunities, but we share a common passion of the U.S. and India Strategic Partnership Forum, which is a way of giving back to two great economies and the alignment of uh, countries in terms of key uh, global goals. Uh, it's been 30 years uh, that you've been involved in Federal Express, so you have a, a feeling for it. You've had one of the greatest mentors in Fred that I think there is. You have a team with Rob Carter and others that clearly understand technology and the evolution. Uh, so I would love to just start by saying you've always been a forward-looking visionary. Uh, you know how to transform a logistics company uh, and a distribution company into really a digitization company. I'd love to delve into that. I'd love to talk about how you all keep reinventing yourselves and how do you reinvent what is already a great product, but a great uh, corporate brand uh, and a role model that I think many other people can learn from. So Raj, I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm greatly honored and I'll try to do my best not to let you down uh, in this fireside chat. Hey, John, thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's a great, great pleasure to be with you. And we have spent a lot of time together, so it was wonderful to have this conversation. As you said, uh, you know, one one thing is for sure: as of today, I'm on the top two CEOs of FedEx. You know, and uh, if so, if someone had told me 30 years ago that uh, this is the job I would be doing, I thought I had a better chance to play for the Indian cricket team. Well, you're a pretty good athlete, so I would say that was a possibility too. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. More exciting on it. You know, I'm going to start with one that fascinates me, Raj. Uh, companies do not reinvent themselves. Great companies usually are the most difficult to change. Yet FedEx, under Fred's leadership and now under yours, is a company that reinvents itself constantly. And it's almost like it's part and into the culture. And you all have done it again and again, and you're about to do it another time. So how do you build that into the company and, and how do you sustain it? Well, John, that's an absolutely fantastic question. I think uh, the fact that um, Fred founded the company and had to continuously innovate to stay uh, ahead and provide differentiation uh, for our customers has always been uh, on the forefront. So, um, you know, even way back when, you know, when in the Fred said that information about a package is as important as the package itself. Now, today, if you say that, ah, that sounds interesting. But he said that in 1978. And uh, from there was born tracking and tracing. And we were the first inventor tracking and tracing. When the internet came along, we were the first application on the web when content was king, for example. So it is, this DNA has always been with FedEx. Uh, you know, at the turn of the century, we got into the ground parcel business in a big way in the U.S. domestic. And, you know, we had 10% share versus our competition at 80% share. So, we again, we have to continuously 
innovate, continuously find those points of differentiation to keep putting points on the board and gaining. And uh, I think that gap of 70 points of share is now roughly 10 points. So you can see this is a continuous process here. When you think about it, uh, uh, you're reinventing the company one more time, and you've done it successfully over you know, in the entire 50 years that Fred led, uh, and now the, for your time. What's your vision of the next-gen FedEx? Is it too broad a question, or do you kind of have an vision where you want to take the company going forward? Well, I think, uh, first of all, FedEx has been built on, a, you know, over the last 50 years, we've built these networks in place. And at, at the end of the day, in a physical network, what we really mean by it is you can pick up something in any one part of the world and get it to any other part of the world in a couple of days. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's what the power of a network does. And there are only very, very, very few such networks in the world today. But it's been built on a foundation of technology. What I want to do is to be able to almost flip it the other way. Now that we have built these networks, that every day we are sitting on a lot of intelligence uh, on, and that, we, that I want to be able to enable other customer supply chains to become smarter uh, through technology and the insights and data that we can provide on an everyday basis. So the network gives us a unique advantage to provide this clear logistics intelligence That'll enable our customer supply chains to grow smarter, and we want to be part of that journey. When you think about what you all have done, you you understood from almost the very beginning uh, that you all were a technology company who also did logistics and distribution. Now we're moving into a digital world, which takes technology to a whole new level, uh, connecting 500 billion devices in this decade uh, to the Internet. Your all's ability to provide customer service and speed and brand in a way that others do not uh, do. How do you think about digital innovation and and how do you get your arms around it? And then how do you successfully drive it through the company in a way that the company's values and core cultures are able to leverage it? So, you know, we exist at the intersection of the physical and the digital. The best example I can give you is during this COVID pandemic. You know, we are one of the two companies who are in charge of distribution, distributing the vaccines. And if you think about it, you know, the, the way, when if you remember originally, there was so much comments about how are you going to get this done? We got, we got these uh, temperature control requirements and who's going to get this to, you know, anywhere to anywhere kind of situation. Well, we already had the physical network in place to move these things. The other part of it was we had 24 hours in, to move it and the, the temperature control was fine. 24 hours, I can, <laughs> I can get a lot of things done in 24 hours. And uh, so we were, had that physical network in place to enable us to distribute those vaccines to any, from any point to any point in, uh, in, in, in the United States and eventually outside the U.S. Secondly, it had a significant information intensity associated with it. And so in just, you know, we, we had uh, data platforms and uh, visibility and predictability uh, algorithms that we knew before something went wrong, something is going to go wrong, and we were able to fix it. And so in this process, we distributed millions and millions and millions of vaccines, and we got it 99.9% right. So it is that combination of that physical and digital that enabled uh, to make that happen. And that's what we are. We live right at the intersection. When you think about it, I don't think innovation has ever occurred at a faster pace nor there have been many 
ever a period of time when there are so many innovation, quote, options. You think about it from your all's business, the electronic vehicle. Uh, you think about autonomous driving. You think about drone delivery. Uh, you think about automation. Uh, how do you stay ahead and yet realize being too early can be as bad as being too late? How do you decide which technology you're really going to bet on? And is there a process that a playbook, if you will, Raj, that you run on these? Yeah, it's a very good question, John. So on the vehicle side of the equation, you know, we we focused in on two ends of the spectrum. One was on the over the road uh, expressway transportation. And the, and the other one was working on the, you know, the last mile robotics. Um, and we knew that those two areas were ripe for disruption and there were opportunities. So we studied the market. We studied the technology that's out there. We have a very disciplined process, how we approach it. But we also find those unique points of leverage that make sense for us to participate. So I'll just use the example of the over-the-road transportation. So, you know, when you talk about these uh, big trucks having autonomous, you, you're not going to see them on your road, on your, on your local street anytime soon. But you might see them on the expressway. But what we have got is 320 points right on the expressway where our, our facilities exist. So you can go point to point on these, on these uh, autonomous vehicles, and then we can drive from there using, you know, using drivers. And so there is that combination of the technology being available, unique facilities that we have, and, you know, and being able to provide the solution. So that's the kind of thing that we think it through to the, you know, what can, what is the opportunity to create the most value, what technology is available, and what value that we do, we provide that can unlock that potential. So that, that's, uh, that's one. For example, the other one is uh, just data. You know, we are sitting on global supply chain data. So we realized that in the last two, three years that, you know, we needed to be able to create a common data platform across the board and run artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms on it to continue to enable to make our supply chain smarter, our customer supply chain smarter, and enable visibility for the end consumer. So that's the kind of, I think that you asked about the process is really we think it throughout the front end to say what value can we provide? What is it unique to FedEx that makes us, gives us the ability to do it better than everybody else and make some pointed bets on things that, that, can, that can make a difference. You know, you've hit a, an issue on global supply chain. And I think more than any time in my lifetime, every person in the world understands both the opportunities and the challenges with the global supply chain. Yes. You all did a, an amazing uh, FedEx Global Economic Impact Report. What were the, some of the key takeaways in terms of the global supply chain and, and what are the some of the opportunities and challenges facing it that you saw in that report? Well, you know, it's funny, in the last two, three years, the word supply chain went from, you know, very much a trade conversation to an everyday conversation. You heard it on the, you know, Today shows, for example, and it was unbelievable that everybody was talking about supply chain. And I think it's just because before that, there was things were, run, things were running smoothly. Nobody really cared about the fact that, you're, that what you were buying was produced in completely another part of the world and somehow it all got assembled and showed up at your doorstep or you'd be, you know, on, on your store. Well, when that did not happen is when everyone started paying attention to, okay, what went wrong here? So fundamentally, there was a, a, um, a supply demand issue and especially on the ocean front. I mean, if you, you know, you know, on the airplane side, if you actually think about the snarls, they're really within the first 20 miles from the port, ports in, inland. That's where the issues were. 
you know, whether it is the number of vessel, vessel up, you know, whether it is, you know, the unloading the trucks, the warehouses. And when everything was working fine, nobody thought about it. There are multiple links in that chain and uh, in those first 20 miles or so. And then after that, it gets into the FedEx system and then it's distributed into the country, no problem. And or we are flying over the top on the airline. That's also not, was not an issue. It is the key bottlenecks were right in that area. And, uh, the, and, and that exposed a few things. You know, you know, that, you know, the handoff from one to the other is not as smooth as one would think. Uh, you know, it exposed a few bottlenecks uh, in the system that, you know, that, that, that uh, had to be solved for. So the things are now much better as, uh, first of all, the demand is eased off. And the supply side has been, you know, essentially, you know, more or less fixed. Uh, but then there was the other issue of uh, this bullwhip effect, which is a completely different issue altogether. As yeah. uh, when the when the demand started to fall off, especially on semiconductor strips and everything else, the supply went down significantly, and then the demand immediately rebounded. And we haven't yet totally caught up on that side of the issue. So there are two separate issues. One was the supply chain bullwhip effect on supply demand. And the second thing was this logistics infrastructure issues, particularly in the first 20 miles of the ports. You know, Raj, you and I are alike in many ways in terms of our values. And and while Cisco was, quote, a different industry than FedEx, we were actually many of the same type of philosophies. You all had a philosophy of focusing on your customer's success and and meeting their expectations in a way that your counterparts could not. You had a philosophy of leveraging partnerships as well as startups, uh, and you've done it in a way that really changed innovation. How do you get that to work in a company? And and, yeah. I, and I'm going to take you down to some of the smaller startups, which is where my current patient is here in a moment. But yeah. how do you get into your culture where it isn't we're, we're FedEx, we know how to do this ourselves, we don't need other people to help us, either big or small companies, Yet you almost do the reverse. How did you build that into the culture? Well, I think it's some, it's been a learning experience for us uh, in this in this regard. And I actually personally spend a lot, lot of time uh, out in the West Coast talking to a lot of startups. We have learned a few things along the way. What we can bring to the table is scale. We can take something small and scale it up enormously, and that we can do it very quickly. So we are constantly on the lookout for the best solutions that you know solves action, everyday business problems and when we find them we try to we try to take an active uh, interest in those companies with the idea that you know when you make it successful that can be scaled at a global level pretty quickly so that at least that was the philosophy that we were going after you know one clean clear example about this is uh, robotics and you know the field of robotics has been you know i would say almost flat for many, many years. And suddenly over the last three or four years, um, the because of artificial intelligence and machine learning, that field of robotics has fundamentally transformed. And you think about our situation, you know, especially this day and age, you know, availability of labor and so on and so forth is very, very difficult. And we went through that period of time. And, uh, you know, if you go to some of our facilities, some of the more newer facilities, it's completely automated. And, you know, the packages go through one end of the building and comes to the other end and in a matter of minutes and nobody touches it except on the unloading and loading. And, you know, so now we're looking at solutions uh, for from a robotics perspective to package loading and unloading. There's no way that we're going to be able to do that. So we have to partner with companies 
and especially the newer companies and startups who might have a much better idea to do it for to do that. And they want to work with us because they have a real live application that when it works, it can be scaled. So that's how that partnerships are born. Can you take it the next step for me? I was doing the homework for this uh, uh, Yin's, uh podcast, and uh, one of the areas you got close to is a startup called Bright Drop. And it has to do with electronic vehicles, and you have a number of them uh, in in your process. How do you think about the startup? How do you find a way to make it work? Uh, often for startups, a very large, powerful company can either give them too much love or too little love, either one of which kills a startup. How do you strike that balance and, and maybe using Bright Drop as, as an example, if you could? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in this particular case, uh, you know, we, talks about and we announced our carbon neutral goals, you know, in a, a few years ago. We were the most ambitious in our industry by saying we'll be carbon neutral by 2040. And we had, you know, thought through this pretty carefully. We knew, you know, we have, um, you know, for example, we have 200,000 vehicles, motorized vehicles in our system. We have 5,000 facilities and we have about 700 airplanes. And so we knew on the vehicle side, the answer is going to be electric vehicles. That's, that's where we got to go. Electrification was our answer. On the facilities, we can make it carbon neutral. We have a path forward. And then on the aviation side, we're working towards it. We knew we didn't have an answer. In fact, we want to do, we have invested in creating fundamental research uh, with Yale. We stood up the Yale School of Natural Carbon Capture. And we know more work needs to be done. So on the, specifically on the bright drop, they were essentially our path forward on our, our, our step we're taking towards electrification of our vehicle fleet, which has told you so many of them. And so that's where, you know, and plus they you know, they, they also had the ability to scale uh, their production. And so not only can we get the first five trucks or first five vehicles, we need so many more. So we think uh, that they're able to scale up. So that's kind of how that came together. And, um, uh, you know, that's, again, it, as I said, we look for solutions to real life business problems, look for the technology solution that provided that can make, make sense. And then we look for the ability for it to scale uh, on the FedEx FedEx uh, globally. You know, it's amazing, Raj. Uh, uh, you and I uh, both view the opportunity between the U.S. and India as one of the most key economic in the world, an example for other countries to do and to implement. I know when COVID hit so hard in India, uh, originally, almost a year before that, India very much helped the U.S. in our supply chain. And this time it, it went across a large country with 1.4 billion people. I think your first phone call, one of your first ones was to me and other members of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. And you said, John, we need to think out of box here. And in many ways, Fred uh, and FedEx led uh, the changes that occurred. Can you maybe share with our viewers why you think this relationship is so important and give them a feel for what USISPF did, and especially without being modest, FedEx was at the core point off the changes we did. A little bit your thoughts on this one? Of course. So I still remember this very, very, very well because uh, it was on a Saturday, really. And uh, the, it was in April 2021. And uh, things were getting really bad really quickly in India at that time. The second wave was going through uh, the Delta wave as, as it was. And I was you know, thinking we got to do something. And we had, had a couple of phone calls and then I called you. And then if you remember within that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, we had a Zoom call. 
I think that must be 60 or 70 CEOs of Fortune 100 companies on the Zoom call. It was unbelievable. And how that happened, and literally the day after, the same call with now the U.S. Secretary of State, it was a, it was a very important uh, call. And that time, we heard from the Indian government that they required oxygen concentrator, oxygen concentrator, oxygen concentrator. That was it. So it, it focused our mind pretty quick. And the second thing that happened was there's a lot of people in the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum you know, really coordinated the efforts from several companies who were willing to donate money and then find oxygen concentrators. But it was pretty apparent quickly that someone's had to get it to India. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if you build, if the neighbor's building is on fire and I'm the one with the fire hose, I'm going to run to it. So, you know, that was a simple philosophy. And uh, we have 40 flights in and out of India every week. And we connect the world to India and India to the world. So that's naturally what we do. So we then started to mobilize to see where these oxygen concentrators were around the world and started to move them. And uh, we also donated three triple sevens of our own to move more traffic into India at the time. I still remember that literally that Friday night, I got a phone call from a lady in Dallas and she said, my father is dying. I have an oxygen concentrator in my hand. Can I bring it to you? Can you take me to my father in Hyderabad? I'm like, you know, so within six hours after that, we stood up a process where, you know, we bring it to any FedEx office anywhere in the country in the United States, and we would take that. And we had, we had 750 or 1,000 of those. So, you know, it was quite an effort. And we, you know, we worked with the government to make sure this were clear quickly and delivered to the right places and so on. So I think we moved somewhere around 100,000 oxygen concentrators and other equipment in this time frame. So I was really proud and honored to do it uh, and be able to support that. And it was, uh, it was definitely something that uh, we've, we felt that we had the uh, duty to do. And uh, so we did it. So that, that's how that whole effort came about. And I really appreciate your support there because you convened, your, your power of convening others was unbelievable. And so we were able to generate interest among so many top leaders in America at such a quick time. I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen anything like it before either, Raj. You made such a difference there. Mikesh and Gaurav leading U.S. ISPF did an amazing job. And uh, when you talk about business for good and tech for good, there can be no better example of not just the intent, but the commitment, the huge scale and the delivery that Canley, a country could not do. And uh, uh, it is something that I think is a huge part of your philosophy and one of the many things I love about Federal Express. Uh, when you think about key issues of the last two years, people think about a great resignation, people leaving their jobs, going to the next opportunity, next opportunity. And I think an economic potential slowdown uh, sometimes causes people to take a step back on the one side from the employee perspective and say, maybe it's time I really think differently about my commitment to the company. On the other hand, it also causes a company to say, hey, one of the, my most important resources is my people. Uh, and the human aspect of that becomes very key. And perhaps we're now going to see a movement toward the great recommit. FedEx has always created a great environment for employees and great even as strong for their customers. How do you think about that great resignation and maybe even a great recommit for the employees? And how do you get your arms around that? Well, you know, I think one of the great things about, you know, Fred's philosophy when he started this company and has endured through the entire time here is uh, what we simply call people service profit. 
And it's just, you take care of your people, they provide great service for the customers who in turn generates profit for the companies, which you reinvest back in the people. That's a simple, you know, but very uh, foundational to FedEx. And as we have grown internationally, as we have acquired companies, we have made sure that while we get the right technologies and new capabilities of product portfolio, that we instill in every every part of our business the same kind of culture. It's a foundation of people's service and profit. So we are very proud of our culture, and I think uh, it's something that I don't take for granted for any 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 uh, any minute here. And now that we are on a new journey, especially uh, you know being significantly more in in in, in you know interested in driving the technolo- technological uh, um, boundaries of FedEx, that now you know it, this becomes even more important. You know there is a it's, it's that we are now looking for new talent in different areas. And so, you know, we try to extend the same kind of philosophy, but with the, with the idea, with the knowledge that we need to, you know, we got to find the right kind of technological talent all over the world, or wherever they might be. But I think there's something, even though I say so myself, something special about the FedEx culture that, that's attractive in this regard. I and mean, people understand really that we are well beyond delivering, just delivering packages and the true purpose uh, of FedEx and our environmental goals and our ambitions on technology. And once people get that, understand where we're where truly going, there's a lot of attraction towards FedEx. Could not agree more. You know, one question that many people would hesitate about asking, but you know me, Raj, I kind of <laughs> asked this on my mind. What was it like having Fred Smith as your leader, <laughs> your coach, and then him giving you the keys to the, the company? Uh, and can you share with the audience what that is like? Because on the one hand, it's a lo- opportunity of a lifetime. On the other hand, it's it's a little bit you know, intimidating and, and challenging. Uh, can you share a little bit with the audience what it was like for you? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I find it is my greatest honor and privilege uh, to, first of all, have this opportunity, but also have had the opportunity and continue to have the opportunity to, to work with Fred. It's just, uh, you know, he's one of those, you know, there's something you may think about as a CEO school, so to speak, but he's well beyond that. He's a, he's, there's a history school. There's a geography school. There's a humanity school. I mean, it is a, you know, he offers a perspective on different things in a way that uh, I've never seen anybody else do. He's, he's, a, he's highly entrepreneurial. Uh, he's uh, very clear on, you know, what the opportunities might be. And, and communications is very clear. Um, but he also offers that grand perspective of what, what, how this connects to what's happened before or what's going to happen in the future. He's got a crazy sense of seeing around corners. And, um, you, know, the, you, know, you know, one of the interesting conversations he had with me one day was, he said, I don't understand how people cannot see what's, right, not, what's not right in front of them. I said, that represents about 99.99% of the people. And uh, so this is this is uh, it's been a it's continues to be a great pleasure and honor to work with him. Now, it, we know we have signaled this transition for three years, and uh, so there was no surprise. And so the you know that part of it was in everyone knew this was coming. You know, I got I was became the chief operating officer in 2019. I was appointed to the board in 2020. But when the final you know in the phone call came one day and said, "Okay, Raj, you ready?" I said, "What?" And uh, <laughs> here you go. And uh, it was uh, it was a it was a stunning moment to be sure, even though I knew it was coming at some point in time. And uh, and uh, I have to say that uh, it's, it's it's still continues to be a, a great honor, and you know that 
that I'm doing the job I'm doing right now. Well, you're going to be great at it. And I, I mean that with all sincerity, knowing you so well. The question I often like to ask is, each of us probably had a couple moments that we wish we knew 10 or 15 years earlier what we'd learned at a given point in time. For me, I used to view process as an early on CEO as bureaucracy and slows me down. And I fairly quickly, because I got the right people around me, learned that a replicatable playbook allows you to move with speed and innovation. You can't do any other way uh, and tremendously effective uh, on that. Is there a lesson learned you wish you'd learned uh, that you now know you wish you'd learned it 10 or 15 years earlier that you could share with our uh, uh, viewership here? Well, I got two. Uh, one, I would say, is that there was a time when I used to be, I used to say, oh, when you, you know, you get the anecdotes and I say, oh, I need data, forget the anecdotes, you know, they're, they're anecdotal and they don't get you anywhere. You got to see the bigger, bigger picture. But honestly, that was wrong. Actually, when you see individual things and you can actually pull on that thread and you keep pulling and pulling, you actually find foundational issues that actually are, uh, the, the symptom was the anecdote, but they, you, may, you end up in a place where you say, oh, okay, there's something more structural that we got to fix. So, you know, over time, I've learned, especially in our business now, that uh, if you find something a bit odd, chase it down to the end and see what you, what you find. And uh, you may be surprised as to, you know, if you, for example, somebody has got a service issue, okay, well, ask four questions or, or ask four whys. And uh, by the time you get to the fourth question, you'll find out there's something, you know, usually that's uh, needed to get fixed anyway. So that, that's one thing. The second thing I wish I had known earlier was the, from a more techie side, is I wish I had known the centrality of data long before. You know, you know, we've, uh, you know, we have FedEx is sitting on so much data and more importantly insights. And um, if I had known it 15 years ago and we started to put this in a, you know, central data platform and start to create value from that data, you know, whether it is optimizing our supply chains or our customers. I could have begun this journey a little bit earlier yeah, than what I've done. So that that's, you know, but, you know, we're moving fast, very fast right now, and there's opportunities in front of us. Raj, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I know you're halfway around the world doing this <laughs> late in the evening European time. Uh, I want to thank you for the friendship. I want to thank you for your leadership and your courage to make changes, and not just ones that are good economically for your company, but good for the world and giving back to society. I also want to thank you for the many years of friendship we've had together. Uh, I'm going to ask the listeners to uh, kind of rate and review this Chamber's Talks uh, and leave us a five-star review uh, as one of your favorite listening uh, programs. So, Raj, thank you. It has been a joy today. I'm taking notes as we go, especially about people, service, profits, reinvest, people, service, profits, and other ideas today. Thank you. It was an honor. Uh, th thank you, John. I appreciate it very much. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye.